Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man. You're listening to Second Captain's Football at the Irish Times. Thanks very much for taking the time to... Tune into us today, Ken. We're just over a week away from the World Cup and watching the friendly matches over the weekend. I don't know if it was the first time it hit me, but certainly maybe it hit me once again. I really wish Ireland were in this thing. Yeah, um, like yeah, especially when you see us playing quite well as we did against uh, Italy, you know, and uh, I suppose adversely affecting their chances by, uh, well, it wasn't our fault that Ricardo Montalivo broke his leg, but he did break his leg playing against us. Um, yeah. the Italian captain of the night really important player for them um, is going to miss the World Cup which is really unfortunate Martin O'Neill seemed genuinely quite disappointed about that afterwards well I saw him being asked about it by an Italian journalist and he was really at, it was sort of almost uh, you know staring into the guy's eyes almost holding hands with him as he, <laughs> as he said you know how devastated he was to see a player like Montalivo miss out and uh, he apologised if Alex Pierce's challenge, which he hadn't seen again, had anything to do with it, but it didn't. It was by a mile the brightest Irish performance mm. in the O'Neill era. Well, we beat Latvia pretty well. Well, I do think the Montalivo injury did have something to do with it, though, because watching the game for the first 10 or 15 minutes, Ireland barely touched the ball, and we really looked hopelessly outclassed mm-hmm. in that period. And then Montalivo got injured, and I think that maybe the Italians were a little bit... Uh, that that ruffled their composure a little bit. I stepping think stepping out of challenges at that point. Uh, not necessarily stepping out of challenges. There were, although there were a few big challenges going in, especially from the Ireland players. Shane Long went straight through the back of somebody in the second half of the game. Um, David Myler, in particular, I, I remember a couple of challenges from him. And the Italian players are screaming at the referee, going, "What's going on here? You know, this is not what this is not what we uh, are supposed to be doing here today." Um, but you know, I suppose Myler and, and Long, uh, that's their it's in their nature as players yeah, it's to, interesting to go it, for the ball. Giuseppe Rossi's been left out of the Italian yeah. squad and he was perplexed at a minimum about that. His point, the reasoning for him being left out is that he's not back to full fitness, he's been injured, maybe he 
wasn't too keen himself on some of the physical challenges. <laughs> he came out and I'm paraphrasing here, but said, "Well, what do you want me to do? Just jump in and get my leg broken there?" Yeah, I, I, he goes. I, I was playing perfectly well. He said, "If you look at the work I've been doing in training, I'm as fit as anybody. This doesn't make any sense to me." And I thought he played well. I thought he. I thought his his movement was good. Um, I thought he was, you know, he's involved. He was, he was more impressive to me than Chiro Immobile, who is going to go to the World Cup. And it was announced, as, as it's been confirmed, that he's signing for Dortmund for five seasons. This is going to be the replacement for Robert Lewandowski. <sighs> you know, I mean, okay. Immobile is the top goal scorer in Serie A last season, um, you know, which is, which is always an impressive achievement, I suppose. Dortmund are hoping that he's going to be able to uh, do what Lewandowski did. I don't see it. Then again, Lewandowski, I saw him play, I've seen him play against Ireland on a number of occasions and he's never played well. <laughs> so maybe there's something about playing against Ireland that just sucks the life out of these guys. But, you know, I do feel a bit sorry for Rossi. He's a more intelligent player than Immobile. The thing about Immobile is that he certainly is fully fit. He's, he's quick, he's strong. He's more of a typical centre forward. He's more of a Shane Long type, and maybe Giuseppe Rossi is more of a Robbie Keane type. It's a big. It's probably the biggest decision facing a bunch of managers at the moment. Or well, they've made the nearly all of them. Stage, are yeah. In, yeah, all you, in. yeah, you see, Falcao didn't make it. It seemed mm. like that was probably by common consensus that was the right decision. But there's so many guys like Costa going in, Suarez, yeah. and they, they may live to regret that. But I don't know. Well, they, you know, in the case of someone like Suarez, they have no choice really you know he's he's got to go because he their entire hopes are bound up with him um in the case of costa he may yet not make it although i think he probably will um you know i don't think the injury that he had was that bad it was just too bad for him to have recovered in time to play the champions league final but there's more you know there's more space until these uh, games happen i think he'll be all, be all right we'll talk to Dion fanning uh on the ireland situation and also roy Keane, which who of course is part of the Ireland situation. He's not part of ITV for the World Cup now. He's certainly not going to Celtic. He may be with Aston Villa. It's been an eventful couple of days here at Roy Keane. We'll chat about that and we'll talk about the Qatar story and the brilliant work by the Sunday Times and how big an impact that's actually going to have, whether Qatar will have the World Cup taken away or at this stage what the process would be, what the obstacles would be for that to have to happen. James Corbett is an investigative journalist who's done a lot of great work on this in the past couple of years, so I'll be interested in his take on it. But it's time now for Ken Early's Report on Sport. So uh, I guess we should uh, we should continue, because I'd only gone up to mi- minute 15 of the Ireland game on, on Saturday. And what happened essentially after the injury was that uh, it wasn't just that Italy started to lose a bit of their rhythm, but also that I, I thought Ireland suddenly started to find theirs. Um, it... Uh, you know, there was just there was a lot of nice little moves. I mean, Houlihan is really the is the integral player. It's just it's amazing every time you see him play. How has it been that this guy's career at international level has been wasted, has been squandered all of those years? Um, when you look at the way that he was stitching moves together, um, the speed that he moves the ball around. I mean, I don't know also where Houlihan's going to end up. I mean, is he going to stick around with uh, with Norwich? I mean, he clearly deserves a. a a Premier League club, um, maybe not necessarily Premier League. I don't know if anyone else is paying attention here, but there's a really good player there who's who, to my eyes at least, still seems well capable. I mean, he's 32 now, but well capable of, of playing at the highest. Oh, level. If ever there was a player who should be able to flourish into their mid 30s, mm. it's Wes Hood, and he's not fast. He's incredibly quick-witted, mm. uh, good feet, all those things, and there's no reason that any of those skills should be dulled in the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I really liked him. I liked Hendrik as well. Um, Hendrik was playing... Uh, I mean, Ireland were basically playing the two, the double six, you know, Myler and Hendrik, and then Houlihan ahead of them. 
I think Hend- uh, Hendrik is probably better. The thing that was impressive about him was the way that he kind of burst forward with the ball and played passes into the box. Forward passes. I mean, it's, it's something that, I mean, forward passes, it sounds simple, but it's, it's something that not a lot of players can actually do or, not, or do very well. Uh, and it's something that, which he has consistently demonstrated in the few games that he's played for Ireland. He does have. Um, he wouldn't be nudging ahead of McCarthy, though. No, and, but and I, that is one of the criticisms of James McCarthy no, is that maybe he doesn't go for that kind but of But I think he's a complementary player to McCarthy. I think he's more of an attacking player than McCarthy is. Um, so I, I wouldn't... I don't think it's a, it's a question of Hendrik or McCarthy. I think you're looking at the, the two of them. The question then would be, um, is Hendrik uh, and Hulahan together a little bit too much? I mean, it didn't seem to be against Italy, uh, especially if, if you've got McCarthy as the sort of holding player. Um you know, it was looking good, but as I said, you know, the first ten fifteen minutes was was terrible. We couldn't we couldn't do anything. You know, we got the ball. Uh, there were no options. Italy were just closing everything off. We were just booting the ball along, and then suddenly things kind of started to change. And really, if Shane Long had been putting away chances uh, as as ever, um, we would have we would have been leading at halftime. And, and obviously, Stephen Quinn's chance at the very end was it really should have been a goal, and. Uh, so overall, it was, it was pretty good. Now, okay, it's a friendly against Italy, but you know, it wasn't strictly a friendly in the sense that there was there was things at stake for those Italian players. Look at Giuseppe Rossi. You know, they they understood that for some of them, it, this game could cost them. Um, and so for that reason, you know, it was it was good. Maybe this whole thing won't be. Pilkington was the other was the other kind yeah. of good point. Pilkington had a, had a few great little moves, um, opening up uh, shooting opportunities for himself. Uh, generally contributing well to the play. Then when McLean came on, I thought, well, it's been a pretty dispiriting experience for James McLean watching that because Pilkington has just been way better than than McLean. And yet McLean then gave one of his best performances in, in a long time, for Ireland uh, at least, um, you know, and, and was pretty dangerous. And indeed, he was the one who set up the chance for Quinn. So yeah, it was, it was great. Uh, more of that, please, I guess. Roy Keane will be around to oversee that. Or at least assist Martin O'Neill in overseeing it. Yeah, I mean, and and this was, you know, even then at, the, at that stage, we all expected there was the talk at Craven Cottage was, oh, there's an announcement, there's going to be an announcement after this game, and oh, I wonder what that could be, sort of thing. You know, we all thought the announcement was going to be Roy Keane's going to, you know, join Celtic as their manager, um, but Martin O'Neill then refused to confirm that that was the case. Uh, you know, and O'Neill all throughout said, look, this isn't definite. We just sort of assumed that because. We were talking about it because he'd said he'd, he'd been in touch with Dermot Desmond because all this had was obviously in motion that if it wasn't going to happen, why would they even have brought it to attention? Or why why would the response from the beginning have been, yeah, you know, you'll be hearing some reports with this. Well, actually, no, there's nothing. Because Roy Keane was considering it for a couple of days? He obviously was, you know, it took him a, took him a while. And I don't know what eventually would have made him uh, made him decide make the decision that he did. I mean, there are a few different areas that you could look at. I mean, um, number one, uh, it's number one is the issue of existing obligations. You said you're going to do this and you're leaving before there's a competitive game. Does that make you look foolish? I think he probably could have lived with that. You know, I mean, people accept that, okay, while he says he's happy to be doing this job, even if, as he said, some people call it part-time, I don't think anybody necessarily does, but he was the one who introduced that part-time idea into the you know conversation about the job. Into conversation, so maybe that reflects how he was thinking about it. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I think most people would have been able to say, okay, if 
Celtic come, the manager of Celtic is a bigger job than being assistant manager of Ireland. And if you are offered it, then you could understand why he would take it. You know, you, I don't think people would have judged him hard. I'm sure there would have been some people who would have been saying, oh, look at this. Well, Keane, once again, you know, walks out. on. There would have been some people, but I, he, I don't think that would have been the main factor in his thinking. So what would have been? I mean, I think what you've got to look at is why is Neil Lennon not the manager? Neil Lennon was happy to be the manager of Celtic. He enjoyed living there. He, he, he'd, been, he'd been living in Glasgow for a long time. Um, he was popular with the supporters. They kept winning the league. Um, everything was going well on a number of levels, but clearly not on all levels because he ends up resigning uh, quite recently, leaving, leaving the club. So why did that happen? I mean, the reason that that happened is because Neil Lennon felt that he no longer had the uh, tools there to do the job. You know, he... Uh, had seen the players, the you know, Wanyama left, Hooper left. There was no investment made to to attract replacements of that caliber, you know. And you could see the effect on the team last year in the Champions League. I mean, they were really bad. They they did manage to beat Ajax, but they were. It wasn't a good season in the Champions League for Celtic compared to certainly the previous season. You could see that that it was getting weaker. But there was no. I mean, the board were quite insistent. Now this is the way we're going to do it. And okay, that's. You know, which which they're entitled to do. I mean, if that's the way they want they want to run the club. But Lennon obviously felt. I mean, there is this whole thing about obviously Rangers aren't in the league anymore. I think Neil Lennon actually would have been able to soldier on in the absence of Rangers. I mean, Neil Lennon definitely would have. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I don't think that was the thing. Oh, there's no competition here. You know, I don't think that was it. Um, Rangers Rangers are going to be back eventually. Another season without Rangers, he could have put up with that. I think what he needed though was this, was the sense of that there is. It's not. It's not just a club which is completely treading water. Because ultimately, it's just a manager who ends up looking bad. And I was talking. Uh, I was at an event last night, and I was talking to Ozzy Ardiles again. That's my name drop for this particular show. Yeah. And he was amazed that Roy Keane didn't take the Celtic job and was on offer. And this is a guy who is worth listening to this kind of thing. He's managed all over the world. He's an unbelievable amount of countries. Most famously at Tottenham Hotspur. He's just a manager who can't say no. But he's a manager who knows what it's like. He's managing the Premiership and. But hasn't done so in a long time, and so he he's, you know, hasn't succeeded as a manager in the way that he has as a player, uh, which is pretty clear. But yet has a lot of experience in, in managing teams. Uh, I think he's managed in Argentina and elsewhere. He's, he's he's been all over the place, and he just just felt that this is a this is a good job. Celtic's a good job. You take it, mm. and then you you move on from there. I don't think people from outside Ireland <laughs> they're probably a bit nonplus about the idea of Roy Keane as a number two. To Martin O'Neill. Well, I think everybody sort of is. Yeah. I mean, Seamus Coleman talked about the two new managers, you know? So he's, he's not just the number two, but is he, you know, is he even the number two? Like in, in the classic sense, you know, the number two is typically the manager's underling and sidekick, you know, sounding board. Is, is Roy Keane a sounding board? <laughs> Would you want to express a different opinion from Roy Keane about any particular thing? I mean, Martin O'Neill has been saying, look, I'm the, I'm the guy who makes the decisions. You know, I make the decisions on the team. I make the decisions on the squad. I talk in the dressing room. What is it that Roy Keane does exactly? You know, is he is he the, the number two? Often is the the good cop to the manager's bad cop. Is that he a- does seem to be a pretty good cop, but uh, so far they've both been quite good cops. Mm. There've been no stories yet of any bust ups or any major dressing downs because they've only been friendly internationals so far. Apart from when Roy Keane went in to to speak to the Irish women's team and informed them that. Uh, their loss to what was it Emma Byrne said he actually made us feel a little bit worse oh I missed this one <laughs> yeah. it's incredible I could have been away it was when the the women's team played Russia yeah 
uh, and lost. And Roy Keane was there, and he came into the dressing room afterwards for, to to give the uh, team a pep talk. But as Emma Burnett said, he actually made us feel a little bit worse. He said, "She said, look, you can't keep letting those girls go in. The standards have got to have got to improve across the board, you know." Uh, oh no! <laughs> uh, but you know, that's that's what needed to be said. You know, you're not going to make progress by just going in and telling. Does it need to be said immediately after a game? <laughs> well, well, that's the question. You know, it's a it's a cold bucket of water in the face. Yeah, we'll talk to Dion Fanning about Roy shortly. Let's chat FIFA. FIFA. Well, I mean, this was a fantastic story by the Sunday Times. Um, I mean, huge huge presentation in the newspaper yesterday. Um, what I found particularly interesting is online they've they've posted up quite a lot of the documents. Essentially, what they've got is a leak of what they, millions of, of files, millions of emails um, relating to the Qatar World Cup bid and Mohammed bin Hammam, the then um, uh, kingpin of Qatari football. Since, of course, disgraced. Uh, I mean, and this is in December 2010. This vote was held. Qatar. Uh, won the right to host the 2022 World Cup. Russia winning the 2018 World Cup, uh, right to host, rather, not winning the World Cup on the same day. Uh, and at that point, uh, you know, Mohammed bin Hammam seemed to be the coming man in, in world football uh, and was going to challenge Sepp Blatter uh, for the FIFA presidency in 2011. But just before that election was due to take place, uh, corruption was revealed Again, uh, Mohammed bin Hamam, he was linked to uh, these, essentially these blocks of 40 grand in cash that were handed out to uh, football officials in the Caribbean. And he ended up withdrawing, and now he's banned from football for life. So things didn't go too well for him once he took on Seth Blatter. But at this time, um, in December 2010, this is when his power was at its Senate. Now, what the Senate Times have is a load of uh, emails um, which are showing, uh, which are records of... Uh, the relationships that he had with various figures in the football family around the world, um, which are mainly characterised by him giving them money in exchange for, well, you have to fill in the blank as to what you think they're taking, what, what you think he's going to get in return for the money. Although some of them do say in their emails, you know, we intend to fully support Qatar, you know, whatever, whenever that question comes up, you can get at us. <laughs> you know, so you get these, um, these emails, you know, uh, uh, Kalusha Boalia for the uh, Zambian uh, FA, you know, emails. Dear President Bin Haman, thank you for the opportunity you've given me today for meeting. I do appreciate your busy schedule. As per our conversation, please, Mr. President, if you could assist me with about $50,000 for my football association and personal expenditures, I hope to repay you in the near future as the burden is a little bit too hard for me at this moment. Uh, and, you know, a, an email then from... Uh, from Mr. Bin Imam, Secretary, saying, Mr. Bin Imam conveys his best regard to you. Please find attached copy of bank receipt for an uh, amount of 50,000 US dollars transferred to your account. And, you know, the, the letter of thanks, thank you. Uh, there's a letter from George Weah uh, saying the same sort of stuff. George Weah, obviously, the Liberian FA, uh, saying, you know, Mr. Bin Imam, uh, great to see you looking so young. You look amazing. You, you're fantastic. Um, anyway, I've been instructed I should send you my <laughs> bank details, you know. And, and this is what... Uh, uh, this is what is going on. I mean, there's there's so many of these. Yeah, and a couple of things strike me about it. One is the amount of emails that have been sent around. Yeah. Uh, I, I would have thought that if you're up to this kind of thing, maybe it's best done face-to-face. Even over the phone makes it a little bit harder for the investigators. You mean the, the, the paper trail? Oh, yeah. It's like here, just bank transfers, emails confirming bank transfers. It, not that it was made easy for the Sunday Times. They did an unbelievable job. But uh, I'd say once they got digging and once they got their leak 
Yeah. They were thinking, wow, this yeah. is all this is written down. This is all great. The other point is we're talking about tiny sums of money. I know we're not talking 30, 40, 50 grand is not tiny to anybody, but yeah. in the context, we're talking 5 million in total apparently is what was in the slush fund that the Sunday Times call it. And that was enough according to them to essentially buy the World Cup. Yeah. 5 million euro in modern football. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about few months wages for some of the top players yeah but you know you're talking about personal spending money for people I mean there's one document which has a list of all these people who are coming to a conference in Kuala Lumpur and it has you know $5,000 to each of them and their wives you know, just a big list and it's yeah done 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 we've given the five grand to each of these people there's another one where you know it's Nike bags Nike ba- like goodie bags you know for the delegates who are going to, <laughs> got to come to some meeting and it's like can we can we please put the bags in the rooms this time it just looks a bit more professional than if we if we're handing them all out in the lobby you know, this is the sort of, but this is, you know, this is what it takes. This is democracy in action. This is how democracy... I just, I just for some reason, I just thought it would take a little bit more. <laughs> this if, is how, if, if Bin Hammam can get away with... This is how democracy always works. Well, here's the point. You know, Bin Hammam is the guy who's being... Um, bin Hammam is the guy who, obviously, is, is uh, uh, the fingers are all pointing out here. He's the guy going around with a big bag of cash, handing it out to people in Nike goodie bags and, you know, whatnot. But he's obviously not the only person, not the only player in this whole electoral system. And I mean, here's a letter which was written by the president of FIFA, Sepp Blatter. Yeah. Um, and it's dated 16th of June, 2008, Zurich. Uh, and it's addressed to Mr. Mohammed bin Hammam. And it begins, My dear brother, on 8th of June, I celebrated my 10th anniversary as FIFA president. When I was elected into the office of FIFA president, I vowed to look to the future with determination and energy to realize the necessary reforms. Today, 10 years on, the time has come for me to reflect on what was for me, personally, a very special moment in my life. Everyone knows in football, very few matches are won by one player alone. Therefore, I would like to thank you for your support and above all for your tireless work back then. Without you, dear Mohammed, none of this would ever have been possible. So that's... Sepp Blatter, the FIFA president, thanking Mohammed bin Hammam for making it possible for him to be the FIFA president. How did Mohammed bin Hammam do that? Was it using a different playbook mm. from the one that he was apparently using to try to get himself into the FIFA presidency? Maybe it was. <laughs> maybe maybe he, he, he undertook an entirely different system of, uh, of politicking. I mean, this is just the way... <laughs> you know, it's, on, on one level, it's obviously, this, is, this is terrible and it's clear that Corruption has been the decisive factor in you know, how to vote. Because well, the way that it works, okay, so all of these FA officials will then lobby their ex-co members. I mean, the Africa, the continent of Africa has four ex-co members, um, guys on the FIFA executive committee. Um, but, you know, they're voted for by the members of the African, uh, the Confederation of African Football. So if everybody in the Confederation of African Football is saying, you know, you know what, we uh, were very impressed by the Qatari bid and hugely impressed also by Mohammed bin Hammam, who we think might make an excellent FIFA president. And that's the way those votes are going to go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it's just the, it was just the African countries? No, uh, it's, not, it's not just... I mean, it, the, these emails are mainly relating to African countries. Yeah. Because, yeah. Um, but the, as the Sunday Times are going to be... We're going to see a lot more it next may go, It may go to your point about the paper trail. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that necessarily this is these. This is the evidence. This is the tip of the iceberg. You know, this is a bit that you can actually that you can see from the evidence. But you know, does everybody necessarily write from their BlackBerry requesting? Do, do, you know, would every? I mean, you say that if you, on McDevitt, were a corrupt football official <laughs> working for, say, you were working for the FAI, and you and you happen to be 
Owen McDevitt, and the secret nobody knew about you is that you were you liked a bug. Mm -hmm. uh, Owen's he likes a bug, right? So you thinking to yourself, I want a bug. Do you whip out your BlackBerry and compose an email to Mohammed bin Imam with your bank details and saying, if you could please forward me $50,000 from my football association and personal expenses? Or do you, Owen McDevitt, sort of pace the room nervously, scratching your head, thinking, is this the most secure way to, get to, <laughs> to communicate my desire for a bung from, from, I'm not sure. So maybe not everybody does that. We only know here about the people who do do that. Um, so we also have, um, we also have a fantastic letter written to Mohammed bin Imam from Peter Hargitay. Peter Hargitay, who was employed as a consultant and fixer by the Australian uh, bid, which is to say a guy who knows, a FIFA lobbyist, a guy who knows FIFA like the back of his hand, knows all the people, has all the phone numbers, knows exactly who to talk to. He can get you a meeting with whoever, you know. He's got Sepp Ladder on the phone, that kind of thing. Um, he's sort of like the red character in Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, he's like red, except you, the idea is you pay him a lot of money, he delivers the World Cup. Unfortunately, on this occasion, he failed to deliver the World Cup, Mohammed bin Hammam. Well, this is, the, this is the point. Qatar say, this guy's got nothing to do with us. Why are, you, why are you linking him with us? He wasn't part of our official team, which is true. But at the same time, it was clear, it's quite clear from, from all this evidence that he was working with the interests of the Qatar bid uh, at heart. So because there's no official link between them, doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't working towards the same goal. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, the email, the, the letter from Hargitay to bin Hammam is one of the weirdest things I've ever read. Um, uh, it, it maybe it gives an insight into the type, into how important these guys see themselves as being. Just this sort of epic quality to this letter. Uh, Dear Muhammad, this is on New Year's Eve, he's written this, right? D New Year's Eve 2010. So it would be a few weeks after the bids were all, uh, after the Qatar won the, won the thing. But before Bin Imam fell from grace. Dear Muhammad, 2010 was a momentous year, one full of lessons taught and many learned. One of those lessons was that nothing is what it seems to be, ever. But then, that was not a particularly new lesson to learn. One lesson I did learn is that highly driven and intelligent people such as yourself sometimes believe in adhere to the convenient rather than remembering the obvious. I mean, what? What is this guy? I address this reality, blah, blah, blah. And any of you offers ample time to re reflect upon what was, what was not, and what not should have been, what should not have been. What it does not do is offer an invitation to continue on a wrong track based on erroneous information provided by others who once enemies remarkably turn into friends. False friends may indeed serve a purpose, but when it matters, they will have disappeared. In my country of birth, we used to say that people who are truly close would be called friends, not brothers, because friends, one can choose. Uh, and he talks about how Mohammed bin Hammam has become this... I, I can only observe and acknowledge the stupefying achievements I witnessed by your hands, mind and spirit. When we first met years ago, there was one Mohammed bin Hammam who was soft-spoken, discreet and by no means prepared to challenge this, that or the other. Today, the Mohammed that is, has become a leader who goes the route of many leaders. Your strategic savoir-faire and what more, what's more the tactical savvy that won your country the World Cup bid is spectacular. There can only be admiration... Um, your ability to offer, to offer this, is, this is the key bit your modus operandi based on years of experience combined with intimate knowledge of the players on the chess set of group dynamics and your ability to offer what others could not I wonder what he could mean by that was a fine lesson in Machiavellian expertise combined with cultural history accept my respectful congratulations so this is the guy who essentially had the same job yeah. for Australia yeah. that Bin Hammam we think had for Qatar. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Looks like there's a lot of insight for Qatar. Well, certainly the guy, certainly this guy, Peter Hargitay, yeah. saw Bin Imam in those terms. And Amazing. He, uh, That's an unbelievable letter. I think, his, I think his point there about the ability to offer what others could not 
may have been a reference to the Australian bid team maybe not having quite as much, quite as many blocks of US dollars in cash to uh, use in yeah. the in the furtherance of their uh, bid around the world. There's tons of these documents on the Times website. Mm. I mean, most of them are literally those that, that sort of. Uh, uh, between Asking football money, officials, yeah, yeah, here's my bank account. Oh, thank you. I got your, I got your <laughs> bank transfer. Thanks. You know, uh, many, many thanks. Uh, Ally is great, and this kind of thing. Richard Keyes has been writing with this. Well, Richard Keyes is obviously somebody who who we we turn to at such moments uh, to to try to figure out what to think. Isn't his blog called Is it Keys of the Kingdom or I'm not Keys? Sure. It is it's something like that. Yeah, Richard Richard A J Keyes, I think he's. I write looking at a becalmed Indian Ocean, heading back to Qatar, where I understand things are very different, says Richard Keyes. Well, I assume he's looking out the window of a plane, um, from which vantage point the uh, sea generally does look becalmed. Um, he says, thanks to everybody at the hotel that he was staying in, the Maldives, for looking after him and his wife. So he's got, he got the mention in the second paragraph. Um, but he goes on to talk about people have been sniping at me, you know, having a go, and because they want to ask about Qatar. I have no idea how the decision was reached when Qatar both bid and won 2022. If somebody has questions about, quote, dodgy dealing, unquote, and quote, backhanders, unquote, I'm sure he will, in time, in the correct manner, be charged to, to the, he will answer to those charged with the right to ask. Uh, none of us wants our sport to be tainted with wrongdoings, but come on, let's be realistic here. Are we truly to believe that if rules have been, quote, bent, quote, or, quote, circumvented, unquote, here, that it would be the first time this had happened? I think not. And I'm not preempting any inquiry as to whether that happened. So he goes on to talk about how people are against Qatar. You know, there's an irrational, almost racist grudge against them. Let me give you my experience of the country. I first worked for the Qataris in 2008. Our relationship has grown each year to the point when I moved to the Middle East to work on July 8th, 2013. I'm not pretending everything in the country is as, quote, we, unquote, in the West would want it to be. There's much work to be done on workers' rights and various freedoms. But no one denies that it's being undertaken as I write. And what better way to, quote, change, unquote, customs <laughs> than to shine the spotlight on the trouble? The World Cup bid is doing that. Uh, Middle East is football mad, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he goes on uh, to talk about, essentially, he, you know, he thinks... Let's just let's just go ahead. Come on, you know you can't make it over there breaking eggs. You can't win a World Cup bid without bunging a few football officials around the world. But he goes on to point out what, in his view, is the hypocrisy of the Sunday Times bringing this to attention because they're part of the Murdoch Press. And Richard Keyes has had his days with the Murdoch Press. In fact, he worked for the Murdoch Empire for that's that's how everybody knows him. His work on Sky, but obviously things went things went wrong. Um, but he goes on demanding fair play. Come on. Um, he says, in the middle of the forest fire that engulfed Andy and me, brackets, over what? Close brackets. Here's a word for word exchange between me and a former high profile editor of one of Murdoch's tabloids. And he goes on, after, and he says, I took notes, so that's how I'm able to reproduce it exactly. After a couple of minutes inquiring as to how I was getting on, as everything around me quite literally burned to the ground, <laughs> etc. How long? How, how long have you been married? 28 years, says Keys. Okay, you could survive this, but tell your missus it's going to get rough. He says, why? What the hell has any of this got to do with her? We both know what they're doing and why. Um, the editor says, that's his maybe, but it doesn't matter. Look, let me put it like this, and it gives me no pr- great pride to admit it, but I invented this form of journalism. Right now, they'll be out looking for anything they can to nail you with. If they can't find it, they'll make it up. Key says, make it up? What do you mean? 
Uh, and the editor says, there's an army of girls out there that they'll give 10 grand a time to to get them to say anything they want if it does you harm. By the time you get your chance in court, two years from now to clear your name, it's too late. And so Keyes finishes off by saying, you know, this is unbelievable, I was subjected to this. And essentially uses that to, I suppose, discredit the documentary evidence. Doesn't entirely work. I have got the blog title now, Ken, in front of me. It's actually called Richard Keyes, Your Key to Sports. But... The, it's not a, it's not the word key. It's your followed by a graphic, a very a graphic of a very ornate golden key. Really? Two sports. So, so that's what we got there. The text isn't it's just your two sports. Your followed by a picture of key to sports. World Cup warm up, Ken. Yeah. England aren't getting much done over in America. Having a bit of a shambles. Um, well, I mean, they arrive in Miami because it's it's quite warm and hot, uh, humid, and they think it's going to be similar to Manaus where they have to play their first game against Italy. Um, only to find that when they get there, it's also kind of the beginning of the hurricane season and the training ground is completely swamped with water mm. uh, from a downpour, so they can't train. Um, so I guess they, they just went to the gym for a bit. Um, but there's a bit of um, a kind of debate at the moment in the England team about Rooney and, and whether he should even play. I mean, they were playing again, they're playing against Peru. Hodgson described Rooney as rusty. I mean, this is what I don't understand about Hodg- Hodgson. He says, first of all, I think it's a bit sad the way that everyone seems to be obsessed with Wayne Rooney. I don't think he's ever set himself up as being more important than any other member of the squad. He's just a member of the squad who works very hard and do- does all he can. Um, and then he says, oh, I think he's rusty. You know, and he's like, well, it's an invitation to sort of speculate on whether he's fit enough to play. You know, I mean, it's... Um, it- I do understand Hodgson's point to an extent. I was watching the game and... Daniel Sturridge did very, very little mm. bar whipping a ball into the top corner. Yeah. <laughs> so that's always enough. And in fairness to Rooney, he was their top scorer, wasn't he, in qualifiers. It's not as though it's not as though the guy never produces for England. In fact, he's been a reasonably consistent performer over the years for England in qualifiers. He just doesn't produce in major tournaments. No. Well, hasn't. No, I know. Well, I, I, I since, see, for, hasn't yeah, for 10 years. I did see the point being made in a couple of places. Well, the, the argument for Rooney to be dropped is essentially based on how he played four years ago but I don't know if that's entirely true I think it's how he played two years ago how he played four years ago how he played six years ago mm. just for whatever reason he seems to he's been unlucky he's arrived with injuries arrived with personal issues he seems a little bit happier this time around but rustiness isn't great at this time of the season no well he is going to play there's, there's no he's doubt he's definitely about it. not going to no, drop him no, no, no way Hodgson no. is going to drop him I mean Skulls Skulls I think when he wrote that blog has he got the balls yeah queried that and I think the implication was probably not um but, you know, that's, I mean, if you were Hodgson, would you drop Rooney? Personally, I wouldn't. I mean, I'd definitely start him. No, I don't think I would. Actually. I'd start him in the tournament, and then then you'd have a decision to make. I mean, if, if he didn't play well, if the results didn't go well, um, then maybe. Uh, the, the other thing to happen just there was that, obviously, Lampard has left Chelsea, uh, which is a, and he's written a note in which he describes, he, he thanks the people who who helped him to, you know, to become what he is. Can I guess this? Yeah. There's no thanks for West Ham. Is uh, that it? No. He never never misses an opportunity to not thank West Ham. There's nothing about West Ham, no. Um, there's Ken Bates, who put his neck on the line to sign me as a young player. Roman Abramovich, the man who saved our club and took us all to new levels. His desire to put the, put the club to the top of the football world has rubbed off on everyone. His desire and his... Uh, yeah, his desire. Um, and the Chelsea fans, I believe they are the greatest fans in world football, says Frank Lampard. So, uh, yeah, he's apparently probably going to join New York City, who have already signed David Villa. But they don't play even their first game until March 2015. So 
uh, I don't know what he's going to do until until then. That's the end of Kennedy. The, the other thing I want—it's just just to mention very briefly—that Chelsea are looking at signing Fabregas as uh, they want Fabregas, and it appears they want him more than anyone else because Arsenal, for some reason which bewilders me, don't want to re-sign him. Uh, Barcelona evidently want to get rid of him because they want to sign Coke. And Manchester United, since Van Gaal arrived, are no longer interested in Fabregas. So Chelsea now seem like the only club willing to pay what Barcelona are looking for. Just to, to remind you of what you're dealing with with Cesc Fabregas, a statistic of the most three balls in the last five Premier League seasons. Okay, it's the last five. He's been in Barcelona most of that time. Who's the top of this? It's Cesc Fabregas. He's got 64 three balls in 52 games. The next is David Silva, 62 in 130. Fabregas hasn't even been playing the league most of the time. Okay, not, Silva hasn't been there all that time, but that's the kind of uh, ability. Rooney's third on the list, Nasri and, and Frank Lampard. So, um, whether or not he's suited to playing in the Barcelona team, I think he's definitely shown that he's a brilliant Premier League player. That's the end of Ken Early's report on sport. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be asked, answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just. The bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. We're joined now by James Corbett who's done a huge amount of work on the guitar story over the last number of years and I'm sure James you read with interest the Sunday Times reportage over the weekend. Uh, Given everything that you know about the story up to this point are you surprised by anything that the Sunday Times had to report? No not at all. The Sunday Times um, demonstrated in documentary form um, possibly better than anybody else has done in the past uh, the way that the system works, uh, the way that the FIFA family works, this network of hospitality and largesse. Um, I think specifically with regard to the decisions to award the World Cup to Russia and Qatar in particular, um, we've seen, um, again, we've seen documentary evidence of what seems like a manipulation of that process, not with regard to the hospitality handed out to African delegates, but with regard to the fact that uh, the legal fees were paid for the disgracefully for Exco member, uh, Reynold Tamari, um, apparently by Bin Hammam. Why did you find that the Reynold Tamari, I, I know that you saw special significance in that. Can you explain why, that, why you think that's so important? So Reynold Tamari was... Um, he was a FIFA executive committee member for the Oceania region, and in October 2010, he was um, he was he was part of a Sunday Times investigation by one of those same reporters who who did the story on Sunday, Jonathan Calvert, in which he was asking for inducements, not personal inducements, but for his um, but for his confederation in exchange for a World Cup vote. Uh, Jonathan Calvert was posing undercover uh, with Claire Newell, who's now at the, at, the, at the Daily Telegraph, as a consultant for, um, I think it was the American bid. The Sunday Times published um, that story along with video evidence, um, and it also implicated Amos Adamu, a Nigerian. Um, and it was, a, it, was, it was a colossal scandal at the time, um, it was touch and go as to whether the actual um, World Cup bid decision would take place. 
um, when it was planned on the, on the 2nd of December 2010. But anyway, it did go ahead, and instead of 24 members of the FIFA Executive Committee meeting, um, committee voting on it, there was only 22. Now, with regard to Tamari, um, Oceania had lined up David Jung um, as his replacement, but they, to, they were unable to bring Chung in in time for the vote um, while Tamari's uh, appeal was going on. So there was lots of pressure for um, Tamari to give up his appeal. He'd been banned for, I think, two years from football, maybe three years from so, football. So basically, James, what had happened there is uh, he, he was clearly not going to be able to vote, but rather than step down and allow someone else to come in and take his place, who might have then voted for somebody other than, say, whoever Tamari had intended to vote for, which we can only assume was Qatar, he decided to appeal and thus nobody got to uh, to vote for Oceania. He he was kind of sitting there like the dog in the manger. Exactly, yeah. And um, the evidence at the weekend would seem to suggest that Bin Hammam um, or, or a company linked to Bin Hammam paid for Tamari's legal fees. Now, Tamari and David Chung were going to vote for Australia. And I don't actually think that you know, the fact that Chung or even Tamari would have been able to vote would have actually influenced the result. But what it shows is it shows manipulation of of the bid process, which we've not really seen before. Um, so I think I mean I mean that's very significant and very serious. I mean the other the, the other part of the allegations was this massive nexus of hospitality um paid to um, members of uh, the Confederation of African Football. Uh, Federation heads were sent to Kuala Lumpur and Doha uh, with their wives and partners and given up to $5,000 cash for shopping expeditions and so on. But I don't, I don't actually think that this was directly part of the, of, of, of the World Cup vote process. I think it was linked to Mohammed bin Hammam's um, ambitions to be FIFA president. There was a FIFA presidential election in May 2011, which uh, he tried to stand for, but uh, ended up getting shot down in flames. Well, certainly that's what uh, the Qatari bid would uh, and have been vehement about saying. They they say there's no connection whatsoever between anything Bin Hammam might have done and anything to do with them getting the, the World Cup. Now, Michael Garcia, FIFA's investigator, Seems to be happy enough with that investigation or that explanation for the time being. He says he's not going to look at any of this new information. Um, does that? Uh, we all await with interest what he comes out with, and we'll see what differences there are with what we saw from the Sunday Times. But w- is it a little bit strange that Garcia is going ahead and publishing his investigation in the next week or so? I think without taking account all this, these millions of new documents. Well, there's well, I mean, there's two parts to that question. Um, Firstly, Bin Hammam was was involved in the shadows of of the Qatar bid, so it's not true to say that he wasn't. I mean, he didn't have an official role on the big committee. He was president of the Asian Football Confederation at the time, and Korea and Japan and Australia were also bidding for the World Cup. So he had to sort of maintain a neutrality, but he was deeply involved in the lobbying, and um, the you know the Qataris. Acknowledged that at the time. Um, I, I, I mean, an interview I did with uh, bid chairman uh, Sheikh Mohammed, uh, the then Emir's youngest son, um, in October 2010 has been widely quoted in which he describes Bin Hammam as as being a mentor to the bid. So, mm. I mean, it, it, it's it's simply not true the statement that the Qataris put out at the weekend. 
you know, denying any any connection with with Bin Haman. With regard to Garcia, he is um he's concluding his report um over the next week. Um it, it does seem remarkably strange that it's only it's only today and tomorrow, I think, that he's actually interviewing members of the Qatar bid in a man and he's somehow going to get all this finished in time for FIFA Congress next week. He's had two years to do it. Um, I don't personally take his um, investigation very seriously. Uh, there's there's lots of questions asked with regard to his previous work in the United States investigating things. Um, uh, there's the Congressman Elliot Spitzer, for instance. Um, the fact that he's not even allowed to to enter Russia because he's he's in dispute with the Russian government would suggest that you know it, it's it's it, it's not something that should be taken too seriously, um, and whether FIFA will actually ever um, publish this report is, is you know it remains to be seen. I suspect they won't. I suspect it will probably be leaked sometime in the future, but it will it will remain highly confidential. Yeah, I mean, like these emails were were leaked. Um, I mean, nobody knows what the source of the leak is. If you were just if you were to speculate, where do you think that might? Uh, where do you think this might have originated? <laughs> uh, what is the Irish Times prepared to pay for a for a libel lawyer for <laughs> yeah, me? Yeah, not sure about. Not sure if that can be answered. You, you are the first person I've heard mention Russia twenty eighteen, uh, which <laughs> it's amazing, really. All this stuff about Qatar. Um, coming out at the moment, and almost nothing said about Russia, which was obviously decided on the same day by the same electorate. And and I guess um, the Russian bid team was looking at a situation where, I mean, what we've seen about, like, the mechanisms by which, you know, that the Qatar bid teams appear to have exploited, I guess the, the Russians were looking at a, a similar landscape, and yet we never really hear much about um, the, the World Cup in Russia, which arguably... I mean, given the, the recent uh, political developments there, um, is is a more sort of controversial situation than than the idea of having a World Cup in Qatar. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Qatar, I suppose, symbolises um, for a lot of people the worst. Um, what would the word be? I suppose excesses of FIFA, and you know, it, it would seem to show FIFA to be a corrupt and incompetent organisation. But when you look, you know, when you step back and look at it rationally, you know, it is uh, for Qatar. It's a form of um, soft political power within the region and the wider world. And I suppose you could say that um, it's a vanity project for um, super wealthy. Uh, leaders of a of a tiny country, but then you look at Russia and what and what's going on in Russia and um, what Putin has done to the country and what he continues to do to his um, you know to neighbouring countries and you know it it legit you know it will it will serve to legitimise um, an absolutely horrible regime um, you know we had we had Prince Philip uh, likening. Putin to the Nazis last week, which I, which I, uh, sorry, Prince Charles, which I think is perhaps over the top. But you know, you look at you look at past mega events in in countries with um, that sort of political background. You know, the Berlin Olympics, the World Cup in Argentina in 1978, and I think it, I think Russia 2018 will will follow that tradition. Um, I'm going to put to you a quote from Richard Keyes. 
a broadcaster who, who works in Qatar. Uh, he says, what I don't understand is the deep animosity bordering on hysteria and racism that goes with every mention of Qatar. Now, we know that Richard Keyes, uh, you, you know, he does work out in Qatar. He explained he, he does have a working relationship there. It does seem to be the primary source of his income. And maybe we have to factor that into what he says. Does he, though, have the germ of a point? Uh, he does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, I had to have a laugh at Richard's blog <laughs> last night. Um, I, I, I thought Alan Partridge might have hacked his Twitter account at one stage as they're well. All, they're all like that. Partridge has been writing Keyes' <laughs> blog for a couple of years. Now. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, I mean, he absolutely does have a point. And I think, I mean, I, I think one of the very interesting things about Qatar is that it's it's probably the greatest PR disaster uh, in modern history. Um, you know, they 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 sought to define themselves by the World Cup, and everybody hates it. I th- I, I think there is hysteria. I think a lot of the media coverage has um, been very poor. A lot of people have written very forthright and um, you know strongly worded pieces on Qatar without actually ever having visited the country or spoken to a Qatari or listened to what they say. At the same time, I mean, the Qataris have just made colossal um, PR blunders ever since winning the bid. I mean, their the, the PR campaign uh, during the bid process, you know, it was very, very heavily resourced. But, it, you know, it gave a very articulate vision of why the World Cup should be hosted in the Middle East, the unifying power of football, that it was a tournament for the whole region now you could just say that spin or whatever but you know they gave an articulate message but ever since they won it they've not done anything they've not done anything to back that up and they're now at the stage where you know whatever anybody prints um and whatever anybody writes or says you know if they say something nobody listens to them you know they're in my in in my view they're pretty much past the, the point of no return James, you actually have been over there and you, and you have researched this and you have reported this. I'm wondering about the motivation for that. Uh, maybe the, the question is actually, do you ever get disheartened when you produce this kind of work and we see what the Sunday Times have done? Because you, you look at it and I suppose the question is, does anything change? I guess it does if Qatar ends up not having the World Cup. But Sepp Blatter looks like he's going to be sticking around for another few years at the top of FIFA. Do, do you ever have to question what the actual motivation is? Uh, my motivation yeah. or uh, yeah you do well you well you, you, well you do and you don't I mean I put in an awful lot of miles during the, during, during the World Cup um, bid race and you know you get frustrated at the time because editors and someone would, would give more coverage to Michael Owen's latest injury or you know what Wayne Rooney was doing at the weekend and so on and and you know nobody really takes sports politics um, seriously unless unless you know it, it, it sort of verges on um, you know the extremes mm. you know the corruption and so on. I mean it's a fascinating it's a fascinating world, um, but it's but it's not really done particularly well uh, in the English language media. The Germans and the Swiss um, cover it a lot better. Uh, in ter- I, mean, I mean, in terms of the end game, um, you know, can this can this sort of journalism make make changes? Well, yeah, I think it can. I think 
I think what we saw at the weekend was a turning point uh, in, in, in a story that's been going on for, well, I mean, I've been covering it for five years now. Um, and I think we're now going to start approaching an end game where the questions will be not will Qatar host the World Cup or not, but how will it be removed? What will the legal process be? Who will get it next? Really, that's, I mean, that's, uh, it's interesting that you say that, James, because, I mean, okay, we can see that if, if you know, if the bid process is shown to have been corrupted, um, then, there, you know, there are clearly, the, there's the possibility of legal challenges from countries who lost out and so on. But at the same time, is there not a sort of inertia about the World Cup now going ahead in Qatar? I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of building has gone on there. A lot of contracts have been signed. Uh, a lot of things have already been set in motion. Uh, do you think that FIFA would be looking at that and thinking, well, you know, at this point, it's unfortunate the way things happen, but it isn't the first time in the history of our organisation that a World Cup has been awarded this way. So uh, the, the least troublesome course of action now is just to go ahead with this. Well, I think one of the main failings of the way that Qatar has been represented is that the World Cup is shown in isolation, and it doesn't exist in isolation. Um, you know, the country has huge infrastructural problem, um, sorry, plans, which are not um, dependent on the World Cup. They're going to build what is effectively a new city, um, 30 kilometres from, from central Doha called Lusail, which is where the 2022 World Cup final will take place. You know, this is this is this is not dependent on Qatar um organizing the World Cup. You know, obviously lots of work goes on in stadiums, but you know, the country is is, you know, it's a it's a small country, so you're starting from a low base, but it is expanding um quite rapidly. You know, they've just built a new airport. That that, that certainly wasn't dependent on the World Cup. Um and in terms of actual stadium work, then you know that 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 that's only just begun. So I don't I don't think I don't think from that logistical perspective, um, that's the that's the main issue. I think possibly it will be it, it, it will be contractual things because TV contracts and marketing contracts have already started to be signed for the for the 2022 World Cup. Um, I rather suspect that there will be. There'll be some sort of compromise. I, I, I don't. I mean, FIFA, FIFA ultimately can do what it likes. You know, it, it owns the World Cup. It can, it can take it away and, and, you know, put it on the moon if it wanted to. But um, I rather suspect that there will be some sort of compromise with the Qatari government, and you know, there will be an easy way or an easier way out of it rather than just stripping the country of it. Well, listen, James Corbett, we appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks so much. OK, thank you. Yeah, I don't know how that compromise would be reached exactly. Between, as It's interesting, first of all, that, that James thinks this is a complete game changer, that mm. the Sunday Times has done enough here to really set the ball rolling and have the vote. People keep talking about the vote taken again, but I mean, I presume Qatar can't be in the running for... <laughs> can they? Well, can not? they reapply? <laughs> Um, I suppose they, you know, they've, they've got the beginnings of one already in motion. There, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it would be difficult for them to win. Yeah. the second. But goal. how the actual compromise works? Who who loses money in those contracts? If FIFA are saying to Qatar, those contracts are now null and void. Is it Qatar who go to FIFA? Well, that's fine, but you got to. I don't know. Could could you sue an organization? Or could you sue an organizing body for? Um, 
failing to stop you corrupting them. <laughs> but you could argue that they were, they allowed themselves to be corrupted. Yeah, they certainly did. That could certainly be argued. I mean, can, yeah, can you, sue, can you sue somebody for taking your bribe? It's a messy court case, Ken. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, Dion Fanning uh, joins us now to Sunday Independent. Dion, to talk about Roy Keane, who, well, we're, we're not sure exactly what's going on at the moment, but uh, certainly he's not going to Celtic and he will remain with Ireland. Do you think that he handled this well in a pure sense? Did he do enough? And did he, did he do enough? Uh, did he do it in a timely enough fashion to. Uh, not lose the sympathy of the public here, many of whom probably are often ready to have a go at Roy Keane. I think so. I think there's also an understanding from most people that Keane, Keane is assistant manager. You know, he's not the manager. If, if, it was, if he was the manager and had uh, you know, toyed with, with Celtic, it would probably be a, a different matter and people would be, would be kind of bringing up you know, Saipan again and all kind of in this sort of slightly idiotic way. Um, but I don't think that that's the case when, when everyone understands that, you know, what is exactly is he doing? Now, I understand the points that are made in, in the last couple of days saying you know, he is enjoying working with, with, with the young players at Ireland and, and those aspects of the job. But everybody knows, including O'Neill, that there will come a job, there will come a time when there's a job that does, does appeal to Keane and he wants to be a manager and he said that himself. So I think, I think you're looking at a, a it's not a, it's not an unconditional commitment to Ireland. It's 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 a, a commitment to Ireland based on the fact that Celtic the Celtic job probably doesn't have enough to take him away from what he's doing with Ireland. Is that good enough that it's not an unconditional? Am I being a little bit uh, idealistic to think that maybe if he's that if he's important to Martin O'Neill, then he should be worth fighting for? Because one of the things that interested me here was. This is probably O'Neill's first PR battle, really, since he had to take over. It was, it was the first challenge for him, and it looked like maybe he was getting a bit wary of the whole thing by by the end of it. But uh, normally, you'd expect the manager to fight tooth and nail to keep their assistant. But it seemed like he was pretty amenable to the whole thing, and will be in the future if Keane wants to go somewhere. Well, I, th- I thought O'Neill handled it pretty well, even though he did seem. I, I think he, his, his uh, weariness about Keane uh, predates. Not not about Keane, but about the, the Irish obsession with Keane uh, predates predates the Celtic speculation that a lot of questions revolve around Roy Keane. I think that's understandable when very little else has been happening. Uh, I think when the when the when the, the camp qualifiers start, that'll that'll change a bit. Um, and I don't think I think there's a re- I think he was I think he was pragmatic enough and realistic enough to say I will be disappointed if if Keane decides to go, but. Also, being aware that this is this is what's going to happen. I think, he, as he said, he didn't expect it to happen this quickly. I think it is an interesting uh, commentary on on how how recruitment works in in British football. You, I think I don't think it's just the Ireland job. I think Keane's Keane's profile with ITV, and I actually think, and I think the the Vieira documentary uh, altered uh, people's view on on Keane in Britain again because their view on him has evolved over the years, but it's still. Uh, it's still a, a more a more black and white uh, view of Keane than than people in Ireland have, and I think that documentary changed changed people's view of him too. So I think all the things together have increased his profile, and I think conditional is just being being realistic. You know, at the most extreme, if Manchester United offered him offered him a manager's job, would you expect Keane to turn it down to stay stay with O'Neill as Ireland as his assistant? I don't think anyone would would really expect that. I mean, what you've been saying there about this sort of uh, Irish fascination with Roy Keane is—it is interesting now. I mean, I, 
You know, it's been going on for a long time, and he was obviously the best player, the best footballer that we had, and and winning a lot of important titles with Manchester United. And uh, he was clearly our top football, top football man, you could say. Um, it's been a while actually since that's been the case, uh, but but evidently the fascination hasn't really dimmed. Uh, and I, th- I think O'Neill probably is a little bit surprised uh, by it. Maybe he didn't realize just how, how high profile his assistant was going to be. Why is it still like this? I mean, what is it about Roy Keane that everybody is apparently still um, so uh, so interested in when it, when it's so long since he's actually done anything interesting? Um, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with with uh, the last part of that. I think, I think it's his. I think it's something to do with his, his unpredictability to the degree. I think, I think it feeds into Saipan, uh, but, but before that, there was, there was, you know, Saipan was, was a sort of culmination almost of, of Keane's relationship with Ireland. And I think there is that, that kind of ambivalence that was always, that, that has been there, uh, maybe, maybe actually kind of created more of a, a curiosity and, and, a, and a session in people who wanted to know why can't he just be why can't he be straightforward? Keane isn't straightforward. He isn't predictable. Uh, I I I don't think he's I don't think he's good. In, you know he he hasn't been the kind of manager that you would have you would have hoped he was he was going to be from you know when he was when he was a player and saying interesting things. I think he's he's become less interesting uh, as a football figure because of the way he he's approached management and the way he approaches. ITV punditry, which you know, again, I think he can be—he's only really interesting when he's talking about things that concern his great issues, like you know, you know, Manchester United, how players approach the, you know, playing for United. For example, when you know, when uh, United got knocked out of the Champions League last season, and his his immediate reaction was to kind of criticise them for feeling sorry for themselves about about uh, the nanny sending off, and it is this kind of Roy Keane on alert. Uh, against the great, the great, the great issues he he's kind of battled against, like complacency and and, and self pity and all these kind of things. Uh, but when he's asked to talk in a general sense about football, he doesn't have he, he's not that interesting. He's not he doesn't have uh, a lot to say. So um, in a way, he has become a less interesting person for the world, you know, the world at large. But he remains uh, a fascinating figure in Ireland because I think of that. A kind of ambivalent relationship he has with Ireland. Now there are people in Ireland who will tell you, "Oh, this is just a media obsession." I, I don't, I don't believe no, that. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. I have heard that once or twice. But then you get talking. To, I was at an event last night, and Roy Keane was nothing to do with it. And I end up talking to loads of people about Roy Keane. Oh, really? So it's clearly it's not a it's not a media driven no, thing, or I mean, not purely. Say it's a media obsession. Are people who aren't interested in Keane? So they mean that you don't share you don't you don't share my views on Keane. So therefore, it's a media yeah. thing. But I think you know I agree with you. Most, lots of people are interested in Keane. Dion, does the Aston Villa number two and Ireland number two uh, combination sound like uh, double jobbing that should be achievable by Keane? Yeah, I think it can be done. I think it's, uh, again, you're, you're, you're left in, in this area you know, with this question of you know, what does Keane do a lot of the time as, as assistant manager? What does a manager, international manager do? You know, we, there was a lot of uh, Trapattoni got got kicked around a lot, you know, probably rightly for not attending matches, uh, pro- pro- possibly because you know that's really all you can do as, as an international manager most of the time. Uh, but for an assistant manager like Keane, I think he can go to he can go to games. Uh, you know, he can double job. It's actually quite useful. 
he can see players that he'd be seeing anyway. He'll come across players in the, in the course of that. So I don't I don't think there'll be any problem uh, time you know time wise. Um, possibly when you internationals come about and you're away for ten days, clubs might think that's not ideal. But I think again, as an assistant, you could probably do that a lot more than you could do it as as manager of a club. Why though? I mean, there's a question I would come back to is why. I mean, okay, so the the Celtic manager's job that was in, in a way more straightforward, and it seems that he he ultimately wasn't interested in that because. When you boil it down, it's not really that attractive a job, you know, for a whole range of reasons which are too long to be included in this question. But why would you want to go and be assistant manager at Aston Villa? I mean, if you've already got a job, as you said, I've already got two jobs. I just don't understand why you would want to take on another job to be an assistant, um, you know, at a, at a struggling Premier League club. I just, why wouldn't you just. Um, I mean, Roy Keane only has 24 hours in his day, seven days in his week, the same as everyone else. Why, why would he want to do this job? Well, is it not an admission that there, there, is, there is plenty of time in his, in his day uh, to do something else? I agree with you. I don't think it's a job that is particularly attractive for, for lots of reasons. Uh, and I think, I think the way Keane is going, the way, the way these jobs are coming along, he, he'd be as well off just sticking with what he has for now. Because there'll be another one along in a minute. There'll be another one. Like, <laughs> wait, till, wait till this September, October... Uh, so, you know, management calls begin in the Premier League, and uh, if Ireland have started well, we have a couple of good results. He'll uh, he'll be he'll be in line for 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 plenty of them. And I know O'Neill, uh, when he was talking about his disappointment uh, if Keane left last week, he did say that you know he had this interesting point when he said you know this could materialise again in in mid October, uh, and I thought it was an interesting thing to say is if maybe. In the summer, when the things aren't really important, this is this is a time to be dealing with this. But it won't it won't go away. Maybe maybe Keane will say he's not going, he's not interested in any jobs. But again, I think there will always be a job that interests interests somebody you know somebody with Keane's ambitions. Dion Fanning, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Thanks, guys. It's interesting that Dion thinks that Vieira documentary did good things for Roy Keane in terms of how he's portrayed in the UK. Because Keane himself didn't he say he regrets doing it? Yeah. And inter- that was because. He felt I don't know. He felt well. He, that was I mean. He he had uh, he he was apologizing. That's the I don't know if apologizing is the word, but say, saying that he regretted some of his choices in his team. Remember his his all time team. Yes. Where he left out gigs. Skulls Neville. Uh, he left out Sc- He left out Neville. Obviously, was like, Skulls you know, in there? Neville. In fairness, I, I could well believe Paul Parker was a better player than Gary Neville. And Paul Skulls. He did say if I was to drop anyone, it would be myself for possibly Skull for possibly Skullsy. So it wasn't quite the worst, uh, you know, omission. Gigs is, is really the one that stands out. But I suppose there's the difference between um, the. Uh, you know, maybe while it may have improved his standing with the public, it's like, oh, how wonderfully uh, humane and intelligent and uh, amusing Roy Keane can be. Um, there's the public and then there's the actual people who he was talking about, like Ryan Giggs, the now assistant manager at Manchester United. Giggs himself is the subject of an ITV documentary. I think it's this Thursday night. I'll try yes. To say, yeah. Uh, based on his <laughs> five games. minutes in the job. <laughs> uh, right, literally, uh, Ryan Giggs has a, a documentary made by... Uh, some of the same people who were involved in the Class of 92 documentary okay. um, about his four games as manager of Manchester United. And I've seen the trailer of this as his gigs sort of talking, talking about how he was taking a plunge into the unknown uh, by, by taking the job. And I guess they're going to show exactly how he managed the team for that extraordinarily brief amount of time. Yeah. Uh, I suppose this is, this is something that we should welcome, really. 
No, no, it'll be interesting. And they made the Keen Vieira one very well. I think you make quite a few. I saw the. I finally got around to watching the James Cracknell documentary. Remember the Sporting Sporting Lives? I think was the name of the series. The Keen Vieira one wasn't part of that series, but Didier Drogba's episode was on directly after that oh, Keen yeah. Vieira documentary. They made a good few of these. But James Cracknell, the former British rower, who uh, has been struggling quite a bit since being involved in quite a bad accident uh, while trying to cycle across the US a few years ago. Uh, there was This is apropos of nothing really, Ken, but I'm just saying that ITV have pretty good form in making quite interesting portraits of people. Hmm. Gigs, I don't know. Is he going to give you enough? He's, does well, he... I mean, the class of 92 was obviously a bit of a soft-focused job, you know, everyone looking back at it. I mean, did the, I can't remember if Tony Blair directly appears in it, but, you know, they're, they're talking about Cool Britannia and how United and sort of music and new labor and so on changed britain in the 90s um where the so maybe i mean I, I think it did definitely boost the profile of everyone involved you know you're oh, watching yeah. going oh this is kind of feel good stuff maybe gigs is thinking you know, it's not no bad thing to have documentary makers in um and i can trust these people to, to do the right kind of job but of course you know the other end of it is the brendan rogers uh it can be maybe a little bit dangerous uh, just to let too much of your day-to-day routine get on tape. But, you know, if if Giggs wants to do that, if this is the way of the future, then all the better for us. Make sure to buy the Irish Times. Tomorrow World Cup magazine is out to get you a little further in the mood, just over a week away now from the, the start of the tournament there. And listen to our first show today. We've got Limerick Herder, David Breen, also Dennis Hickey, talking about what lies in store for Leinster in the post-Brian O'Driscoll, Leo Cullen years. You can do that on irishtimes.com forward slash second captains, iTunes, SoundCloud, the Podcast Republic app is a good one for Android. In the meantime, Ken, thanks very much. And thank you too. Thanks so much for listening. We'll chat to you again soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 